Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. We're so excited today to welcome Joe Sy to ETL. He's the co-founder and the executive vice chairman still of the Alibaba Group, a global internet technology company. There's no introduction, but it's based in China with a portfolio that includes about everything under the sun, e-commerce, cloud computing, digital media, and entertainment. Uh, he joined Jack Ma and the others to incorporate the company in 1999, just over 20 years ago, and he served in a variety of capacities, uh, leadership capacities over the years. He's now responsible for the company's strategic acquisitions and investments as the vice executive vice chairman, I hope I got that right, Joe, and um, serves on its board of directors, obviously. He's a graduate of Yale College and holds a law degree from Yale Law School. Um, in, in addition to his role at uh, Alibaba, uh, I'm just as excited that he's an owner of the NBA's Brooklyn Nets and the WNBA's New York Liberty and is uh, vested in several other sports and sports media companies. You can see all that up on Wikipedia. You know, I had two dreams in life was to be a college professor and own a sports team. So I got one of them done, but it's great to hang out with somebody who actually got to do that. So we're gonna, we're gonna talk about uh, both of those things. Welcome, Joe, and good morning once again. Good afternoon, Tom. I'm very glad to be here. And uh, uh, I guess for one afternoon, I can be a college professor and speak to the students. Well, absolutely, and come back anytime. We'll always give you this platform. Okay, so let's go. I, I, you and I talked about this beforehand and agreed that it'd be fun to do about three different sorts of uh, uh, parts of this or pastures as uh, they call it at Harvard Business School. Let's do that. So let's go way back. You're born in Taiwan, which is school at Yale, like I said, but what attracted you back to uh, China initially? Well, Tom, I was, I was working in New York as a lawyer. Uh, I started out my career uh, in the law. Uh, I come from a family of lawyers. Uh, my grandfather was a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. Um, and of course, you mentioned Yale Law School. Um, and uh, uh, I really wanted to uh, get away from the law and get into business. Uh, so my first exposure when I left the law practice was to get into private equity. Uh, and I worked for a small firm in New York. Uh, just by fluke, I got an opportunity to interview uh, with a firm called Investor AB. It's a Swedish company. Uh, they, it's a, uh, uh, backed up by the uh, Wallenberg family, and they were making investments globally uh, and starting a new area of investment in medical technology, information technology, et cetera. And I, I was intrigued by the opportunity. Uh, someone I had worked for before in, in Hong Kong introduced me to the opportunity. Uh, so that's how I made my way back to Hong Kong. Um, and uh, and then uh, four years into my job there, I met Jack Ma. And, and how did that happen? Well, a, a mutual friend uh, introduced us. Um, and uh, uh, so the circumstances are interesting because uh, there's a friend of mine, his, his name is Jerry, uh, Jerry Wu, not Jerry Yang. It's another Jerry. And uh, uh, at the time, uh, Jerry had a, his own technology company. He tried to merge the business into Alibaba. And I asked Jerry, why do you want to sell your business? I, you don't even know what this Alibaba.com 
is about and you do you know i barely know jack so what what's um what's up and he said well it's because alibaba has a name dot com in it and I've, if i can merge my company into jack's company uh, maybe he'll take it public after six months and we'll do really well <laughs> so that was his motivation for introducing me to jack he said you go to hanzo joe uh check him out uh see uh, what uh, what you think of Jack? So I went to Hangzhou. Uh, this was in May of uh, uh, 1999, and um, uh, I met him. Uh, it's in China. It was sort of the beginning of the internet uh, at the time. I, I remember. I think Yahoo went public in '95. eBay came came around '96. Uh, so China was a few years behind. And back then, only 10 million internet users in China. Right now, we're over 900 million internet users in, in China, uh, mobile internet users. Wow. So, it, it, so everything happened very, uh, very quickly. I, uh, after my first visit, I was just fascinated with uh, uh, not the business plan. The plan itself was kind of ordinary, uh, but I was fascinated with the person, with Jack. Was um, he a school teacher? Yeah, no, he, he had already founded uh, Alibaba. So I, you know, I stepped into his apartment uh, there were something like 15 people there. I saw 15 pairs of shoes uh, in front of the apartment before I went in, um, and I met everyone. And then I, uh, then I had to use the washroom, so I went to the bathroom and saw 15 pairs of uh, toothbrushes. Uh, so people were living in that apartment, cramped in there, sleeping on the floor, uh, and, uh, and I thought, wow, this is like the real entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and uh, I fell in love with uh, the, the the company. Back then, it wasn't really much of a company, um, very small operation, um, but it was great. So when I read that there were 18 co-founders, was that the, the shoes? Yeah, absolutely. It was a shoe. They were smelly shoes, too. Um, the, uh, I think one of the most important things to learn about Alibaba and, uh, is the, the ethos, the people behind it. And obviously, Jack is the main character. And Jack is a very inclusive person. Uh, when we, uh, in fact, when I met him first, uh, we hadn't even formed a company. We hadn't incorporated yet. Uh, so it was just a collection of people. Uh, be and because of my legal background, I said to Jack, look, I'll help you incorporate, uh, but who are the shareholders? Uh, he's, he, back then, you know, this was in 1999, he faxed me a list. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the students here haven't even used the fax before. Um, and uh, there were 18 names on that list. Uh, and I said, Jack, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the founders of the business. Uh, I know you're the main founder. There may be a couple other people, but why 18 people? He said, well, these are all my students. In fact, most of the founders are about 10 years younger than Jack uh, and, and, my, and me. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm the same age as Jack. And uh, they were students of his in uh, Sojiang University, where he was a lecturer in English and international trade. And uh, he said, they started this business with me. I want to include all of them. Uh, and in fact, he gave away uh, quite a bit of equity uh, to all the uh, original founders. So we had a group of 18 people. Wow. But I'm, now I want to ask you about your mindset or your, your uh, state of mind at that time. So you, you went to Yale. I understand you played, uh, speaking of sports, which we'll get to, uh, you played lacrosse. I think you even played football, if I got that right. High school. Uh, high school, okay, right. So, and then, you know, you, you seem like the, the dream 
uh, investment banker. You you know you go to there uh, Yale to, to get a law degree. You, you become a, a investment banker, doing really well in Hong Kong. Did people think you were crazy when, when you came back and said, "I'm going to join this thing called Alibaba.com as a co-founder"? Well, definitely. When I talk to people about Alibaba, I mean, nobody back then in 1999 appreciated the power of the internet, and uh, people said. What, who is this Jack guy? What, what, why, why do you, why do you want to join? And for me, um, you know, I had transitioned from being a lawyer to a private equity person, uh, an investment person on the private equity side, uh, which allowed me to make business decisions, right? As a lawyer, you're an advisor, you, but you never get to make decisions. But when you're investing, you're, you're pulling the trigger, you're, you have to make a case for it. So that was good, you know, a good experience for me. But after investing for four or five years, you know, I was sitting on boards, investing companies, I talked to management, but you can never get through to kind of the operational level. And I really wanted to understand how a business operates, how decisions are made day to day. How do you deal with people? How do you hire, uh, retain, fire people? You know, all those decisions, they, if you're just sitting at the board level as a venture capitalist, you never see the real picture. And I, I, I was fascinated and I also, uh, you know, w w was interested in seeing how that gets done in the China context. Right. What was the culture like in, in China then for entrepreneurship? Uh, well, it's, uh, I think uh, it is, it was back then, still is today, very, uh, I would say entrepreneurial in that people are uh, always coming up with new ideas. Uh, the potential size of the China market uh, I think breeds this kind of entrepreneurialism because you can always, I think in business school, you teach about, uh, you know, looking at a business plan, the first question you ask is how large is the market? So in China, every sector, every market is very, very large. So you can kind of dr dream, right? And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, but the big difference between Alibaba and today's startups, uh, especially the, the ones that you see in the Bay Area, is that Alibaba never started with, uh, you know, the Yale, Harvard, uh, Stanford, uh, so MIT graduates. We didn't have that the top college uh, grads. Um, I, I would say, you know, we didn't have the the elite or elitism uh, in our organization. It was a group of very ordinary people uh, that got together, that uh, pulled together a vision and also a very defined mission of what we wanted to accomplish. Uh, so I think that was very important. I think with a, with a very clear mission, uh, ordinary people can do extraordinary things. That's a re really important takeaway uh, that you just mentioned. And I'd like to dive a little deeper. So Alibaba, it, in, and to just keep it moving here, I, over its last 20 years has been incredibly successful by any measure. So what was it um, that helped the company scale so well is was it a culture internally or was it a set of strategic frameworks and decisions um, models that you used for your for such rapid growth what what do you think when you think about the whole 20 years yeah sure one of the most important things to scaling a business early is to retain a lot of flexibility and delegate responsibility to the frontline managers and uh, I, I still remember in the early days of Alibaba, people always say, well, you know, you have different groups doing different things and they're all 
they all sort of run in different directions. And what synergy you need to have, you need to bring everybody together to generate synergy because you could have two engineering teams developing the same software, the same applications. Uh, but when you're a startup, uh, you have to maintain that kind of flexibility and allow people to, uh, to run as fast as they can. And I think that's the secret to scaling a business early. But then later on, you need to have more coordination as the company gets bigger. Uh, you, can, you can generate synergies, you can find uh, room for synergies. Uh, I would also maybe almost sort of bring a sort of new, uh, you as a numerical sort of uh, milestones. When you have like 200 people, I think the company uh, it has the potential of scaling up very, very fast and and the flex and flexibility is more important uh, but when you get to about 2000 people in your company then you need to have management you need to have a framework for making decisions and look way, look for areas of synergies is there a particular story you remember over those 20 years a, a moment of truth and obviously we're going to end up talking about what life is like now you know, with the pandemic but looking back was there a uh, a, a risk, whether it was a major decision or a risky decision, you remember one where uh, you'd like you could share with us story. Sure, and uh, you know this is sort of the story of how, uh, as you probably know, we have a very big uh, cloud computing business. We've we're the largest cloud computing business in China, uh, very much like AWS here in the United States. Uh, we have about forty five percent market share in cloud computing. Uh, and the origin of that business about uh, over 10 years ago, it was in 2009, was that we uh, had a big debate among the engineers. Uh, on the one side was our CTO, on the other side were, were a very group of, a very large group of uh, fervent engineers. In fact, our CTO didn't have his own troops support in that particular debate. And the debate was about whether we should develop proprietary technology to um to scale our business from a data standpoint uh so so our our cto was advocating proprietary and then there's a group of open source engineers that wanted to use hadoop and develop on top of hadoop uh it was the early days of distributed computing and eventually the person that settled the debate uh knew nothing about technology it's jack uh, I still remember the meeting. We we were sitting there for three hours debating, and I couldn't understand what was going on because you know I just have a legal training. I didn't, didn't learn how to code or anything. So I was listening to this, and and then finally Jack kind of closed his eyes. He said, "Let's stop. I've got the answer." So people kind of, and he was sort of sitting at the other end of the court, you know, table, uh, and people kind of looked at him and said, "So Jack, how? I mean, we're we're having this religious debate on technology path." And, uh, and, and for you who doesn't understand any technology, you know, to, to come in and, and make a decision for everyone, you know, what make, uh, people were kind of looking at kind of uh, uh, with a lot of skepticism. So he said, well, the decision is we're gonna do both. We are going to commit ourselves, commit resources to develop our proprietary technology. I don't know if it'll work, but we're also gonna keep our open source effort in case we fail. We do both. There's no reason to actually split uh, on a, a, a 
pick a, a, a path right now at this uh, juncture of the fork. All right. So when you look back, it's a very smart business decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, fortunately, we had enough capital so we could afford the, uh, a dual path development. But the lesson learned here is that in when you're in the internet business, when things can scale up very fast, your biggest mistake could be opportunity cost. You choose not to do something and you lose the opportunity to pursue uh, a very different path. So when you look at the history of Alibaba, you, there's a lot of instances where we would do sort of almost two opposing things and it didn't make any logical sense, but it's because we were hedging our bets. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're sufficiently capitalized to, to make those hedges. And, and then once, uh, you know, something develops to a, to a point where we feel that that's the winner, that's the winning horse we can back, we put all of our resources into it. And that's what happened to our proprietary distributed uh, system. Um, it, it was a system that's, you know, basically, uh, my layman's understanding of it is, uh, it's an operating system that can make like 10,000 uh, computers think and work like one single computer. Doesn't matter where these computers are located; they could be located in ten different locations, and they they work as one powerful computer. And that's the operating system we developed. It's called AppSara, and that system today is forms the core basis of our cloud computing business. Wow! Well, that's thank you for that story. That that um, resonates well. Most of our students in this course uh, are from the School of Engineering, and I'm sure they they really enjoyed that. So, so can we move on to that second pasture or second part? It, it's related though. Um, it's an easy segue. I, I want to ask you, what's the difference to you between entrepreneurship and leadership? Because this series is about, it's called entrepreneurial thought leaders because we, we, we have strong beliefs about the relationship between the two, but philosophically, do you, what do you see as the relationship between the two concepts? Well, I think entrepreneurs, the good entrepreneurs develop into good leaders. Because uh, invariably, if your idea works, the way I think about entrepreneurs is you, you're very creative, you have come up with very good ideas, and then you execute it, and then you scale. But once you scale, you have a lot of people. You, you need to bring team members onto your, uh, uh, you know, on board to help you uh, uh, you know, realize the, the vision. Uh, and then people management becomes very, very important. So being a good leader is all about uh, how do you get other people to do uh, something that you want to do, right? Think about this. Uh, how does, uh, how do we, in this current pandemic situation, how do we get everyone to practice social distancing, to but you know, you, you sometimes you can't use force. You have to use a, a combination of logic, persuasion, uh, and just good sense of leadership. And uh, uh, so I think on, good entrepreneurs develop into good leaders. And uh, you, we've seen a lot, a lot of examples like that in Silicon Valley. Well, I, I do want to talk about the um, the current pandemic. But before we do, can we talk a little sports? Because sure. so interesting sure. about you is it's obviously that you've you're truly a global citizen. I mean, with with all your uh, life connections, personally and professionally, in North America, 
as well as uh, China and Asia, there's that. But then there's this decision you made to, to start owning and investing in sports teams, right. which, you know, the one that's probably gotten the most attention uh, for you is the Brooklyn Nets, including the, the center, uh, the Barclays Center, right, in, in Brooklyn, as well as the WNBA team. So what possessed you to, <laughs> to start um, investing and owning sports teams? I've always been an athlete. I, I've, I love sports. Um, when I was growing up in Taiwan, um, I'd get up at three in the morning to watch Little League Baseball. Uh, and then when I went to the States, my parents sent me away to boarding school when I was 13. Um, the, the one way for me to kind of integrate myself uh, into the community uh, with, you know, with some, you know, someone who is from Taiwan, culturally very different. Um, and also I didn't speak much English at the time. So I very much felt that I needed to um, be one of the guys, right? It's a, by the way, you know, I went to school, that's an all boys boarding school. So you can imagine. Uh, so sports is the only sort of way for me to uh, make people feel like I'm part of the community. Uh, so I actively participated. Um, I, you know, I tried out for the baseball team, got cut. I tried out for the swimming team, I got cut. Uh, but then I ended up uh, trying American football. Um, I, you know, I'm not a very big guy, you know, five, nine at the time I was, you know, maybe around 150, 160. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I could run, I'm, I'm, I used to be very fast. Um, <laughs> and, uh, 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 I ended up uh, playing uh, middle linebacker on our high school football team. And, uh, uh, I also, since I got cut from baseball as a spring sport, I, I picked up lacrosse and then ended up, uh, you know, playing lacrosse in high school and went on to play in college. So my whole life, sports is a very important part of it. Mm -hmm. I was never good enough to play basketball uh, at, at the competitive level, but, you know, there's been lots of pickup games and things like that. Uh, and when the Nets, the opportunity to buy the Nets came up, um, I was originally very skeptical because it's, um, you know, it's a big undertaking. It's a, you know, there's a lot of capital investment. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the more I looked into it, uh, I, I thought the idea of a professional sports league, especially the NBA, is a very interesting uh, sort of economic proposition. Mm -hmm. uh, you can imagine there are 30 teams in the league, but all 30 owners share the wealth, uh, the league level wealth equally. So what is league level wealth? Uh, it is revenue that uh, the league generates from being shown on TV, like ESPN, uh, NBA basketball. Uh, you get to keep your local revenues, which is uh, your tickets. So that depends on your own ability. But in a way, there's also the, there's that backstop of league level economics that all owners share equally. So I thought to myself, that's actually a pretty good system. Doesn't matter if you are in first place or 30th place, you get the same split of the league level revenues. And the other very interesting thing about the NBA, I think is uh, true in the most professional sports leagues is uh, per the collective bargaining agreement, there's a very thoughtful way of sharing the economics between ownership and the players. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, the, the players have become more and more important. They're, they're stars, they're literally mega stars, very, very powerful. Uh, so, 
you can't treat your players as employees anymore. They're your partners in the business. They're really good business people as well. Yes, they're very good business people. They're smart. They they wouldn't get to this kind of stardom if they weren't smart. And they're also represented by very, very good business people. So, so you really need to treat approach this relationship as a as a partnership. And uh, if you read the collective bargaining agreement, which is like a you know eight hundred page thick tome, uh, there are very detailed uh, uh, provisions on how you share revenue and 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 things like that. So it, that really attracted me because I analyzed the economics of the league. Um, but the emotional part is it's the Brooklyn Nets, it's New York City. I grew up, uh, you know, actually not being a Nets fan. I actually watched because my high school was in Jersey near Philly. I was a Sixers fan and I was a big Dr. J fan. Uh, the Sixers had Maurice Cheeks, uh, Bobby Jones, Caldwell Jones, those guys. I, and you know, you know what I'm talking about, but the kids here don't because uh, uh, they're too young. But uh, the, uh, uh, but the, the, chance opportunity to own the nba team there are only 30 of them and an nba team in new york city it's a opportunity of a lifetime if you can if you have the resources to do it why not but and, and so this is what's so interesting is what skills and and behaviors or certainly knowledge transferred from your years at alibaba to what you're doing in addition to that now um, with owning the Nets and the, and, and the other ones? Yeah, it, that's a really interesting question. And I've been thinking about this. What, what are the skill sets? I think the, the skill sets of, um, well, you know, we're an internet business in Alibaba. So you're developing software, you're launching a product that hopefully hundreds of millions of users will use. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when you come into a, a, the sports business, it's all about personal relationships. Um, uh, and it's all about making deals, um, you know, media deals, sponsorship deals, uh, and things like that. And uh, so I think that's a very different kind of, I, I would say at Alibaba, we're kind of a direct to consumer business, whereas when you come into a sports business, a lot of the activities are actually business to business, right? And uh, uh, so you have to really shift your, shift your mindset. I think the same principles of uh, leadership and managing people um, carry over uh, uh, for, you know, just you have to make sure that your employees uh, not only co- show up because there's a paycheck, they show up to work because they love the culture of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they understand very clearly what ownership is about. Um, and, and you have to very clearly communicate uh, those values to your employees. And either they agree with you or they don't. Uh, for those that don't, they sort of slowly drop off. But, but then you'll end up with a very gr- a good core group of passionate people that spy into the, uh, the whole vision. So I, I saw yesterday, and we were just chatting about it before we went on, that Dr. Fauci, the Dr. Fauci, has said it's going to be uh, tough to, for the sports teams to operate. I think he said uh, some sports may have to skip this year. So in our transition to talking about COVID, what do you think about that? And how is the NBA 
making that decision collectively. So one of the beauties of being, uh, you know, we're one individual team, but we're also part of the league. So uh, I'm kind of under a gag order <laughs> of what I really think and what the NBA should do. But the reality is uh, everybody is still trying to figure things out uh, with the hope that maybe we can uh, reopen the season, the, the current season, because they're, you know, think about this. You, you, if you look at the Los Angeles Lakers or the Milwaukee Bucks, they're in first place when the season got suspended. There's a chance for them to go for the championship. Of course they want to play. Uh, the players want to play. The ownership want to play, right? And then there's other teams that are, you know, if you're in 28th place, maybe this season isn't that important. So there is a difference in opinion among uh, the, the owners as well. But I think what Adam Silver, the commissioner, is very focused on is, number one, making sure that uh, all the players and everybody associated with the NBA are safe uh, if we do open and uh the safety question uh is really uh has to be rely uh ha you have to rely on data uh i don't think i think adam has said uh look we're not looking at a date uh setting a target date doesn't make any sense let's look at the data i think one of the most important thing to dr fauci's point is you have to have enough tests uh to be able to uh, one of the most um, sort of pernicious things about the COVID-19 is you could be asymptomatic and be infectious. So you can, you know, infect other people while you look perfectly healthy. That's a big problem. And without tests to identify those that are, uh, that are contagious, and then we try to isolate them, without a test to do that, uh, really, it's very difficult to, to, to restart and keep everybody safe and healthy and tracy is going to be important too as uh we were chatting about in fact you know well you know something about tracing right now can you show your bracelet sure of course so i came back to hong kong uh, uh you know i was in the states in southern california i came back to hong kong on monday the rule in hong kong is anybody visiting from a foreign country will have to quarantine themselves for 14 days. So I am right now literally under quarantine. I'm, I'm sitting in my study. And here's my bracelet. Um, uh, I have to wear this 24 seven uh, because they're worried that uh, you are going to leave your house and they want to be, have the ability to trace you. So the bracelet uh, is connected to my cell phone by Bluetooth. And if I literally, if I step out of the house, someone from the health department will call me. Uh, they don't kid around. So um, uh, this is the level of uh, diligence uh, that you really have to apply to, uh, you know, really contain uh, the virus. And uh, uh, fortunately, you know, I, I, when I got to the Hong Kong airport, they make me take a COVID test. Uh, I tested negative, uh, as most, most people do. Um, uh, once uh, you know the test is over, uh, you are quarantined in your home for 14 days. Wow. Um, well, I, I'd like to just finish this before we go to uh, and do some of the. We've got some great questions, by the way, and from the students. Um, would you say 
a word about um, your optimism now or your hope? I mean, if, if you imagine yourself back as a junior or senior at Yale yeah. and sitting yeah. in uh, some sort of class like this, um, but it's 2020 and a few black swans have flown in it or whatever, whatever way you want to, in whatever adjective you want to use, unprecedented. This, this is, this is a, this is truly a special time. What, how do you maintain hope? How do you, how do you look to the future? Um, if you look at history, uh, there's been a lot of pandemics, there's been war, there's been lots of bad things that happened to the world, but uh, the nature of the human race is that people come back, people bounce back. And I think it's inherent in human beings that they want to, they always look up rather than look down. Uh, and um, I would just say that it, it, it's human nature, even though right now the mood is very, very grim. And, um, uh, I, you know, to the current situation, um, I think I, I really feel for the uh, the young people, the students. Um, my my daughter is among the audience here. Um, she's a junior at Stanford, and uh, also I have a son who's a senior in high school. He doesn't get to have his graduation. Um, you have and you have uh, uh, you know athletic teams that their seasons are canceled. Everybody is disappointed, um, but I think at some point just to the COVID-19 situation, someone is going to develop a vaccine uh, that will be able to immunize people and we're on to the next thing. So, uh, so at some point, the things will recover, both medically and also economically, things will recover. Um, and human ingenuity is such that, that you know, new business models will, will emerge. I think right now, uh, what's happened is very, very destructive. Traditional businesses are being destroyed. There's a permanent uh, destruction of wealth in the economy, but that creates opportunities for new business models to uh, emerge. So as students, uh, I would say, uh, actually, you, you know, you've lost your, you know, maybe you could say, I lost half a year, I lost my semester, but um, from a wealth standpoint, um, you know, you, you haven't started yet. So that's the good thing. So, uh, you know, with the skill sets that you guys have learned, uh, that you guys have picked up in school, uh, and Stanford is the best of them, uh, just, there's just so many opportunities out there with new business models that you can explore. Um, and I, the other thing I wanted to say is, when I talk to my parents and grandparents, they lived through war. Uh, my parents uh, grew up in Shanghai. Uh, they uh, had to escape mainland China because the communists came in, so they went to Taiwan. And it, it was a time when I still remember my mom, you know, at the same time as the, the, uh, the civil war in China and the, the communist revolution in China, it was, um, uh, what happened was uh, at the end of the, uh, war with Japan. Japan had occupied big parts of China and there were bombings. So my mom was telling me stories about how they were, they had to go hide in shelters because Japanese bombers came in and tried to bomb the city. So those stories was the last generation. I'm totally fortunate that in my generation, we didn't have these wars, but 
now the next generation, my kids' generation, you guys sitting here in the audience, uh, you know, you would be remembered as kind of the, the coronavirus generation that lived through a very, very serious pandemic. And uh, uh, it, it is almost like war. But the thing is, to my optimism point, after war, there's always recovery uh, because human beings are by nature optimistic and they always look up rather than look down. Wow, that's, that's fantastic, very inspirational. It, maybe we should just use that as our commencement speech at Stanford instead and just rebroadcast this. <laughs> that was that good, Joe. Uh, okay, I've got a couple, some questions here. Some have been voted up. Here's one at the top of the, with all, a lot of votes, it says, you mentioned the importance of defining a vision and mission for a startup. While it's important to dream big, how can teams ensure lofty mission statements don't become just hollow promises? And I love this. Somebody, uh, that person says, WeWork's mission was to elevate the world's consciousness, for example. Yeah. So there, there are companies that have great missions because the founders have been thoughtful, thought through it. And there's companies that are totally BS. And I wouldn't say which ones. No. Uh, if you look at Alibaba's mission, our mission is to make it easy to do business anywhere. That's actually a very practical sort of commercial mission, if you will. Uh, that's because when we were first founded, we, were, we created a marketplace for small businesses to trade with each other, to buy and sell. It's a marketplace model. And, uh, but that mission was true 20 years ago. It's still true today. Uh, we still do a lot of things, whether it's con consistent with the mission of helping small businesses, helping them make everything easy uh, to connect with each other. Mm -hmm. So that underlying that mission statement is we already baked in our business model because it's a marketplace. Uh, there's in, in every uh, business line, uh, you know, not just in commerce, but let's say in media, there are producers of content and there are consumers of content. So how do you put the two together, shorten the distance between them, get rid of the middleman and make it easy uh, for them to do business together? So it applies in the media business, it's applied to uh, newspapers, um, cloud computing, whatever you want. I think you could fit a lot of businesses under that mission and, and we keep extending that, that, that mission. We wanna make it easy. That's that's the core thing. All right. So let's go back to careers, though. From that, we're jumping all over the place because this one got voted up pretty high as well. And it says, your transition from law to business was not without difficulties. What is your advice for, for people wanting to make a strategic pivot in their career you know, right now? Um, do you need to have solid plans in place before making that career jump or is there an element of risk taking involved and not much planning at all? So what I've learned in life is if you try to plan everything out, you cannot plan your career. If you run a business, you got to have a business plan, but you, it's hard to plan your own career because you are going to come across opportunities that you never expect would uh, come, come by. And you have to have the, the sense, the judgment and the optimism to seize on those opportunities, which means you have to take some risks. So when I went into Alibaba, um, uh, for me, I thought the, 
the risk reward uh, uh, situation is actually asymmetrical in the sense that I have very little downside risk, but I have a lot of upside potential. Why is there very little downside risk? Because you know I have a degree from Yale Law School. I, you know, if if everything failed, maybe I could still go back and be a lawyer, right? So I mean, I, for all of you uh, guys sitting here in the audience watching this video, uh, you have you have you're in the world's best institution. You are you know majoring computer science or um, you know symbolic systems or whatever it is. You're you're the smartest kids in the world and equipped with a very good education, you have protected your downside. So let's look at the upside. The risk reward is asymmetrical for people in this audience. Unfortunately, not everyone has that asymmetrical situation. Um, and a lot of people, because they have to put the, their food on the table, you know, support the family, they cannot afford to uh, quit a job with a steady income. Um, but you guys are very, very fortunate. It, 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 true, and and that is great advice. Uh, here's another one, and it's it's a good one maybe to start uh, our last uh, bender coming around the last lap here. This is pretty simple. You've accomplished so much in life as we've gone over the last uh, hour. What else do you want to accomplish, either in Alibaba personally or beyond? What about your future? I, I, you know, the, the funny thing is I hadn't thought about this until, uh, let's say, two months ago when, you know, we all had to stay home and, you know, I've had time to think. But guess what? The, these two months, even though the circumstances that created the, um, the stay-at-home situation was, was a bad circumstance, but I've had a really great time uh, just spending time with my family. Uh, with my wife and kids, um, and uh, and I realized that it it's great. You know, it's it's been a a, a terrific experience just um, uh, being with them and being able to sit down at home, uh, have dinner every night. So what I like to do going forward is to sort of rebalance my life a little bit and uh, try to see my kids more, and uh, and also. Uh, you know, obviously we're here with a, uh, not just the Brooklyn Nets, but also we own the New York Liberty. Uh, I own an indoor lacrosse team called the San Diego Seals in San Diego. Um, uh, spending more time uh, really digging into the business of sport. Um, and because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fanatical about sports, but the business side is fascinating as well. So I like to spend more time there. Well, it's been a thrill to get a chance to chat with you. I just realized you're the third NBA owner that we've had in our classrooms uh, at Stanford, specifically the entrepreneurship classrooms. Uh, mm. Steve Ballmer uh, came in and talked in this series a few years ago when he was at Microsoft before he bought the Clippers. And, and of course, uh, Joe Lacob uh, locally here uh, from the Warriors um, has helped us a good bit and talking about his leap from venture capital to um, owning the Warriors. And of course, any of us around here that are Golden State Warriors fans, we're still sad to see Kevin Grant <laughs> go to that team that you happen to love so much. But we all love New York. And by the way, I also need to 
give you a very big shout out for what you and your wife did four weeks ago for uh, that city. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. It, it, folks, go Google what they did. They sent two big jumbo jets of PPE, uh, mask, uh, ventilators. This is back, I think, probably the first weekend of April, right, right when things were beginning to uh, really super, get super scary in New York City. And even speaking of shout outs, I think you got a shout out from Governor Cuomo in one of his uh, press conferences. But what, what an act of love and connection. And that's when we're reminded that despite sometimes when China and the United States uh, are a little uh, off center, it's we're all one world. And it's I, I enjoy teaching students from Stanford. I enjoy delegations from Stanford. I can't wait they come back and you know, business delegations that we get to talk up to uh, because we really are one world. And you you are a bridge builder and you're a very kind person to do that for New York City. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you for the shout out. Uh, it's something that my wife and I feel very strongly about. And New York City is one of the hardest hit cities. And, you know, we were talking to uh, doctors and hospitals and uh, just uh, our friends who live in New York. And uh, it, it, we just felt that we were uniquely positioned to, to help because access to the PPE from Chinese manufacturers is actually uh, something that not everybody has and and through the Alibaba relationship and through I want to thank Jack Ma as well through him personally he was uh, uh, helping to uh, source the supplies and we were able to bring the shipment shipments in uh, it was done uh, not without a lot of um, a, a sort of red tape I mean they were on both sides uh, it took uh, a lot of effort to export the stuff out of China but also import them because everything with medical supplies will have to be FDA approved. Uh, but we did it and uh, we're very glad to, you know, have the opportunity to, to help. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.